Sunshine State. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk. At the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727 501 9090. That's 727 501 9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727 501 9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. The first vacation is to set out to find fun in Florida with the Spanish adventurer Ponce de Leon. He had sailed with Columbus and heard rumors of a marvelous fountain of youth somewhere north of Cuba. He only discovered Florida, but a million people of all ages discover their youth here every year. The ancient city gates of St. Augustine open upon the site of the earliest American colony where Castle San Marco, the oldest fort in the United States, still stands. Relics of Spanish rule abound in St. Augustine. The king's treasury was erected in about 1600, and the old strong room is seen by hundreds of visitors daily. The slave market dates from 1824. It stands on the site of a similar market serving the old Spanish city. The oldest schoolhouse in the United States is a mecca for students of antique architecture and building construction. The oldest forms of transportation search for passengers, or else dream of finding that fountain of perpetual youth, the magic fountain. Yes, and these young people claim to have come here from an old folks' home in wheelchairs. An alligator farm is close to the city, one of many in Florida, established because the gators were being exterminated, and there is a wide demand for their skins in the making of fancy leather goods. The Florida native says that a wallop from the tail is most dangerous, but the front end of an alligator doesn't look exactly safe. Eighteen miles south are the Marineland Studios, with the world's most amazing collection of deep-sea specimens. People never tire of the fun of feeding fish to porpoises. They literally stand on their tails. Palm Beach, of course, is the exclusive winter rendezvous of the socially elect, and many of its streets are lined with royal palms, not native trees, but brought here from Cuba. When snow and ice and earmuffs rule throughout the frozen north, it's postcard time for friends enjoying the summer-like climate of the south. Having fun in Florida, they write. Wish you were here. Mirrored in Mountain Lake at Lake Wales is the famous singing tower, built by Edward W. Buck as a perpetual interpretation of the motive which he gave as its keynote. Make you the world a bit better and more beautiful because you have lived in it. The carillon of 71 bells provides frequent recitals. In the shadow of the singing tower, thousands of visitors every winter enjoy a tropical wonderland known as the Cypress Gardens, where brilliant flowers and rare plants from far-off lands mingle here beneath the towering trees that are rooted in the water. Flying south and to the west, St. Petersburg unfolds below on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico. In winter, the city's leading newspaper distributes its editions free whenever the sun fails to shine. Probably no other single recreational game has so caught the imagination and won the favor of so many thousands of fun seekers in Florida as Shuffleboard, the ship's deck game which came ashore at St. Pete. Today, there are more than 150 courts available for play. 
Thousands of people come to Sarasota in trailers and park in the world's largest trailer camp. And when it's winter in the north, who wouldn't envy even having a dog's life here? Here too are found the circus elephants, rehearsing that stunt that must be letter perfect next summer. Here the greatest show on earth is at home during the winter, and it opens its gates to thousands of visitors to enjoy the daily exhibitions of aerial acrobats, as well as some of the world's fanciest riders. But for the real headquarters of fun in Florida, the rails, the roads, and the skyways lead to Miami on the East Coast, second in size only to Jacksonville. Biscayne Boulevard plainly proves that this is not merely a place for fun in winter, but actually is a thriving all-year-round business center. Bayfront Park, lying between the boulevard and the water, is the ideal place to loaf and relax in the sun beneath the palm trees. The fishing fleet puts out from Bayfront Park, and the strenuous sportsman looking for a thrill in the Gulf Stream is bound to be aboard. Marlin, tuna, kingfish, sailfish and shark. Anything is likely to happen when a bait is trolled in these waters. Large fish and small ones. And no one sneers at the capture of a sparkling dolphin. Hey now and have mercy, this is Billy F. Gibbons from ZZ Top and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan Talk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfStreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, check out our archive page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Good evening, Tommy. Oh, hello, Robert. Well, it sounds like we had a little excitement a little earlier today, didn't we? Hey, adrenaline was risen a little bit. <laughs> Somebody in the neighborhood, what'd they do? They called in a fake, a, a Shooting hostage situation. A shooting hostage situation, and we were stormed by the local Clearwater's Finest SWAT team, weren't we here? So that was uh, kind of exciting. So actually there was, uh, Tommy walks out, he answers the door because he's talking to somebody on the phone. They said, yeah, you need to go out there and see if there's somebody running around. And next thing you know, he's at gunpoint. So, uh, like, if four M16s pointed at him. So, at any rate, we survived it. So, now let's uh, get back to, uh, to tonight's episode, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Anyway, hey, we got a great show for you tonight. We've got two guests. Yeah, not one, but two guests coming on the show here in a few minutes. And uh, let me just jump right into the FloridaCarshows.com this weekend. 12 hours of Sebring, the 67th annual Super Sebring 12-hour race, and uh, that should be exciting. I think I've been going there since 1976. That's how long I've been going to see. Well, I should say on and off. And uh, Sebring's one of my favorite tracks. I did a lot of autocrossing there back in the day, club racing, so I'm a huge fan. And from a historic standpoint, I believe, if I'm correct, Sebring is the oldest sanctioned racetrack 
in the United States and still exists. So uh, it's uh, very, very historic. So if you get a chance, I want to see some of you guys down at Seabrook. Gator Nationals, 50th anniversary of the Gator Nationals for all you drag race fans. That's in Gainesville this weekend. So that's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And Seabring again is also Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So hopefully we'll see you guys there. Of course, now it's sponsored by our good friends over in Tampa. It's called the Amerly Gator Nationals. Amerly Oil, Gator Nationals. So um, if you listened to the show a few minutes ago, we were I played a little clip on uh, Florida in the 40s. And uh, the gentleman that's coming on a little bit has recently written a book called Florida Attractions Before Disney World. So that should be interesting. So I kind of played that to kind of set that up. But I had to laugh because we were talking about St. Petersburg. And uh, they're talking about the uh, St. Petersburg Times, that if it rained, they would give you the newspaper for free. But it also mentioned that uh, one of the hot sports, sporting activities in St. Petersburg was shuffleboard. And this is no lie. St. Petersburg had two nicknames back in the day when I moved here in the 70s. Wrinkle City, which was given to it uh, by Johnny Carson because of the senior citizens, and the shuffleboard capital of the world. So... I think what we're going to do is, uh, Tom, why don't you go ahead and call our first guest, and let's get him on the line here in a few minutes. <clears throat> and then I will kind of highlight what we did this weekend. My son and I were at uh, Amelia Island this year. So I got up to Thursday morning. I left here, like, really, really early Thursday morning. And uh, I made it to uh, Bottoms Auction, very good auction. And I made it to Russo. This is Russo and Steele's inaugural auction. And then on Friday, I went to one of the seminars, which was uh, hosted and narrated by Ray Evernham. Now, it was on racing the unfair advantage or something to that effect. But basically what it was is about cheating. Now, please visit my Facebook page, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, because they brought out some pretty cool stuff. They had people from GT Racing, from IMSA Racing, from Drag Racing. And uh, they were kind of like not really coming out and exactly... Uh, condoning it, but they kind of, like, there was some really cool stuff there. And uh, the carburetor is what got me, I thought was really, really cool. It had this big, giant dominator there, and it had, a you know, the base plate. And it's a restrictor plate, but what was interesting is it had a slide-out uh, restrictor plate uh, part that, in effect, you slide that out, and then you got big, giant barrels. Okay, so what amazes me is the fact that when somebody would look at this carburetor, that they would never catch it in the first place. But, you know, you had to look at it, and you really could. It was, it was machined so perfectly, you couldn't see any seams. So it was done very, very well. Uh, little things with fuel tanks, little thing with regulators. Um, you know, just, just, it was just a super, super, super seminar. And I want to thank, uh, Ray Everham for, uh, for, for, for dishing it out and taking it because he was, uh, kind of contributed a little bit, but it was, but there was a lot of humor. So we've invited Ray Everham to be on the show. Hopefully we'll have him on here in the next month or two. And, uh, he can share some of those stories and tell us about some of the cool stuff that went on during NASCAR, you know, and uh, so that was pretty cool. But Amelia Island, like I said, is probably the event of events. And then my hat goes off to Bill Warner. They did an amazing job. He just has a, just an array, amazing collection of cars, the people, everybody that shows up. Do we have a guest on the line? Okay, good. Hey, uh, I am delighted to welcome back an alumni guest here. And uh, this gentleman is uh, the media director for Sebring. International race. Well, he's also a historian, and he also recently wrote a book called, I believe I'm titling right, Florida Attractions Before Disney. I'm delighted to welcome back to Nostalgic Reading Cars, Ken Breslauer. Ken, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. So, we got Sebring, 67th Annual Sebring coming up this weekend. Give us some highlights. Well, this year is something special. We're calling it Super Sebring because we're having a doubleheader for the first time ever. On Friday, we're running 
the 1,000 miles of Sebring, which is an FIA World Endurance Championship race. And then Saturday is the 67th, 12 hours of Sebring. So it's going to be a full week. Wow. Now tell us, uh, share some more info on the 1,000 miles. Now what exactly, is this kind of like to mimic a race of way back when, or is this something brand new? This race is part of the World Endurance Championship. So essentially, this is the same cars that run in the 24 hours of Le Mans. They have a eight-race series all over the world, and we are the only North American round. So you'll see all the stars and cars, the 24 hours of Le Mans, running the day before the 12 hours of Sebring. Oh, fascinating. So these are legit FIA cars only. Absolutely. Uh, leading uh, the parade, if you will, will be the Toyota Hybrid, which uh, won Le Mans this year with uh, Formula One driver Fernando Alonso. And uh, he's here this weekend, and the Toyotas in practice uh, already broke the all-time track record. And uh, it's going to be an amazing sight seeing these cars run for 1,000 miles, which is approximately eight hours. No kidding. Wow. Okay, so let's. Uh, how about over on the 12-hour uh, side? Now, those cars are, is it true, some of the cars that run in the 12-hour race and run Daytona and run some of the other GT races around the country can be... FIA homologated cars, correct? Correct. In fact, the, the GTLM or GT Le Mans category is the same category they run at Le Mans for GT cars. So we'll have uh, BMW, Porsche, of uh, course, Corvette, and the four GT teams uh, running in the 12 hours. Uh, they have teams in the World Endurance Championship, too, but these are full FIA uh, ACO Le Mans uh, categories. So you've been at this for how many years now? Have you been uh, in charge of uh, media, uh, the director of, of media for uh, Sebring? How many years now? Well, I hate to admit it, but this is uh, my 35th year, actually. You have seen a lot of changes. <laughs> That's for sure. So, share, I mean, now are you, are you kind of like a car guy to the point where you do you, because I'm more of a vintage car guy, and I've been going there since the 70s. So I really relate to the old stuff, the new stuff. I'm still not. I'm still having a hard time getting warm and fuzzy with it. Well, I, I'm having a hard time getting warm and fuzzy with the E series electric cars, but um, the, you know that I, I really appreciate the technology that the series brings. Um, it is just fantastic seeing these hybrid cars running at the speeds and have the endurance they have. But you know, like you, you know, I, I grew up in the '70s. I started, you know, working here in the '80s. And uh, the changes have just been incredible. The level of professionalism, the level of mega dollars you need to raise, uh, it, it's really a whole different uh, sport. What are some of the other activities taking place during the uh, four-day weekend? We have two supporting events uh, in addition to the two feature events. We have a Michelin Pilot uh, Allen J120, which is basically for street stock sports cars. That's a two-hour race on Friday. And then on Thursday, we have the IMSA Prototype Challenge, which is for LMP3 cars, which is essentially like a baby prototype, kind of a entry-level division for people getting into a prototype racing. And then, of course, we have uh, the Gallery of Legends display, where we have uh, several vintage uh, race cars on display. Uh, we've got all kinds of other activities. Uh, we have autograph sessions. Uh, we have the infamous Spring Break Party Zone and uh, a few other things going on. <laughs> Um, a lot of times before Sebring, they have a vintage race. Is there going to be a vintage race this year with either HSR or SVRA? Well, we had SVRA two weeks ago, and and in two weeks after the 12 hours, the HSR comes. So 
we've got uh, two great vintage events kind of sandwiched on either side of the 12 hours. Okay. Um, so what are the so take us through like some of the top notch cars? The real, who do you, in other words, if you had to speculate a real showdown between two teams, who would they be this year? Well, in the in the twelve hours, um, boy, that's tough. You've you've got the Penske Acura prototypes, mm-hmm. uh, which I think probably are the favorites. But you've got the Cadillac prototypes, uh, which won Daytona, mm-hmm. and they haven't strength in numbers. There's going to be six of them. Uh, the Mazda prototype team uh, was really fast at Daytona, but they still haven't got their reliability in order. And at a track like Sebring, you're really going to need that. And there is one Nissan prototype under Then Actually, Nissan won here last year. So it's going to be a, really a toss-up between those four manufacturers for the overall win. Uh, in GT, again, it, boy, that's just so hard to call. Um, Corvette, BMW, Porsche, Ford, <laughs> it's going to be really tough. Well, now, the Ford's been doing pretty good there with Canassi at the uh, helm, so to speak, of the Ford Racing Program. And yeah, they've done uh, really well in the FIA World Endurance Championship, and they have won at Daytona. They've won almost everywhere, but the one place they haven't won is Sebring. So uh, they are really going to have to win it this year. Give us an idea of what uh, some of the lap times are. Well, right now, the the Toyota is running an incredible minute and 41 seconds, which translates to an average speed of about 134 miles an hour. And I keep in mind that's a 17-turn road course, and that's the average speed. So, you know, they're obviously running top end near 200 on the back stretch. Um, and uh, GT cars probably in the 149 to 152 range. So, you know, last year in qualifying, the top 10 cars in qualifying at Sebring were all within one second of each other. So you can see they, they really got the rules packages down uh, very tight. So it's, it's amazing how competitive the series is. Well, it should be really, really exciting. Now, something else I wanted to talk touch on when we have a few minutes left is you recently came out with a book. Now, I played a little segue earlier in the in the in the show, um, kind of like Florida back in the '40s. But you've come up or written a book here recently, and it's called, if I'm correct on this, "Florida Attractions Before Disney." Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, the name of the book is actually uh, "Florida Roadside Attractions okay. History," and then the subtitle is. Uh, the complete guide to Florida attractions before Disney. So it, it's about um, Florida tourist attractions before 1971, which is you know when Disney World opened in Orlando, and it just really brings you back to some really great attractions, uh, some famous, some forgotten. I mean, you know, Cypress Gardens and Silver Springs and Wikiwachi, and then a lot of other smaller ones that maybe some people never heard of. But uh, it's a really cool book. It's all color. It's illustrated with all kinds of Florida tourism memorabilia. Uh, it's a lot of fun reading. If you ever uh, traveled down to Florida as a kid or lived in Florida back in the you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, that's uh, going to bring back a lot of memories. Wow. Now, if people want to get that book, how do they go about doing it? Well, it's, a, it's available on eBay and Etsy, okay. um, and it will be on Amazon uh, later. But right now, eBay is probably the best place to buy it. Okay, super. Well, you know what? I think what I'd like to do is have you back on the show sometime down the road because well, it sounds like that would be really, really interesting. And I grew up here in the 70s, or I moved here in the 70s, so I kind of remember some of that stuff. But my parents came here in the 50s, and we used to hear about it. So I think that would be a special, a really cool show um, that we could talk about for 30 minutes, you think? 
I love to do it. Absolutely. Okay, good. Why don't you give out? We got a, uh, ready to go here, but why don't you give us uh, all the information on how everybody can get uh, get to Sebring this weekend? Okay, gates open tomorrow at six a.m. and they remain open twenty four hours a day through Saturday. Uh, the big races are on Friday and Saturday. You can buy tickets at the gate. And uh, we do have free parking outside the track at Gate 4, and you can take a shuttle in. Kids 12 and under are free, so it's a great family event, lots to do. Uh, it's going to be a blast. Super. Well, Ken, thank you for sharing uh, a few minutes here with us uh, about Sebring and your book. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show again. In the meantime, I'll probably see you this weekend at uh, Sebring. In the meantime, take All care, right. and thanks. Appreciate it. Thank All you. All right, thank you. My special guest, Ken Brenslauer. Media Relations, or Media Director for Sebring and Florida Roadside Attractions before Disney. Hey, I think what we're going to do is, uh, I guess I can yak, yak, yak for a minute or two, but I think what we're going to do is we're going to queue up a song here, and we're going to uh, go to a commercial break, and we'll be right back. You tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Now, here's a group out of Florida, Three Dog Night. Well, wait a minute. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. I know they were in Florida a lot. But anyway, hey, you're tuning in to Nostalgia Radio and Cars. Here's a little Three Dog Night and Eli's coming. money after 911 and 411 call 541 that's 727-541-1741 call Gulfstream motorsports for a diminished value report due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business i'm very good with wrecks so if your car's been involved in a wreck call me for a diminished value report call 727-541-1741 you may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle and visit us at gulfstreammotorsports.com Okay, we're back, and uh, I'm going to sit there and talk for a minute or so. But, uh, yeah, definitely make it to Sebring this weekend. And, again, I want to thank my good friend Ken Breslauer for coming on. And I'm really excited to have him on the show. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, those that, that, that book that he wrote here recently, Florida Roadside Attractions. In fact, you know, it's funny because I'm in the process of trying to relocate to Citrus County. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, I remember back in the 70s, we used to go up to Crystal River, and we used to go up to Homosassa and Tallahassee and Cedar Key, and we used to check out all those places, you know. So we'd go tubing, we'd go rafting, we'd go kayaking, we'd swim. And uh, on the, the funny part was is when you get past Homos, uh, when you get past uh, uh, Wikiwachi up there and you go north on, on, on uh, US-19, heading towards uh, uh, Citrus County, on the right side, you used to see, the, which, you know, it's, 
in my opinion, would probably be one of those roadside attractions because, you know, everybody came to Florida and everybody was trying to, you know, the realtors were trying to sell them everything. And we used to see these signs, and it was a joke. It's Henry Dingus, Henry Dingus Real Estate, you know, a dollar down and a dollar a day or a dollar a month or whatever it was. I mean, that's how they used to peddle real estate. And uh, just like the old joke about, you know, hey, you're one of my, I, I got some swamp property for you for sale here in, uh, for sale here in Florida. But um, it's interesting because some of the areas, as you go further north, you know, and you're kind of a little bit inland, there's some really pretty areas here in Florida. I mean, Brooksville, you know, on the Spring Lake side, great roads, nice and hilly. You go to Lake County. Lake County's got some beautiful areas over there. Um, you get up to Lake City, up in that area, and up around Jaster. You get up in the Panhandle. I mean, I, I you know, I, I rag on Florida all the time, even not because I'm spoiled, because I'm from California, which... I truly consider it to be God's country. I mean, it's the best state in the world. Politically, it's totally screwed up. But the country, the state is just absolutely perfect. I mean, it's just, you know, the coastline, the, the mountains, the weather, everything about California is just ideal. But Florida's got a lot going for it. It really does. And, of course, this weekend we were up in Amelia Island. Amelia Island was beautiful up there. Uh, it's just such a nice area. And that whole coastline up there, you know, when you go on the on the Atlantic side, it's beautiful. San Augustine's beautiful. Palm Beach, beautiful. Vero Beach, beautiful. And everything, it's, it's, there's so much unique stuff about Florida. So Florida really is a pretty cool state. And uh, you know what? I'm kind of glad I do live here. It's It's got a lot to offer. But anyway, having said that, I think uh, Tommy's going to queue up another song, and then we're going to get a our next guest on for the evening. But you know what? Take some of those day cruises around Florida. Florida's got some pretty cool places. I mean, uh, stick around. We'll be talking about it from time to time. Hey, here's a little uh, Paul McCartney and Wings and uh, Band on the Run. kind of style I'm not up on? That's Fang Schmey, don't you know anything? Gus Loeb was one of the best Scots baseballs ever seen. 
The guy that sent Dusty Baker, Dale Murphy, Tom Glavin, Gus Lobel. Well, what do you fellas staring at? I'm not a pole dancer. Welcome to the partnership committee. I want this. You'd be the only woman. My father is a baseball scout. I grew up around men who swore, drank, and farted. Give me a damn check. Trust me, I can handle it. <laughs> You need to meet with a specialist. How are you going to scalp this guy if your eyes aren't right? I don't need your help. I don't know why you just don't go home. Because I feel this dysfunctional sense of responsibility to make sure that you're okay. Hold on. How old was Mickey when my mother died? Six. How'd you handle all that by yourself? I didn't. You sent me away. Only a coward leaves their kid. Well, you don't know half of what you think you do. Just know you're not. James. Gus couldn't even turn on a typewriter, let alone a computer. You don't know anything about the game. The computer can't tell if the kid's got instincts. You know too much about baseball to be a lawyer. It's a long story. I'd like to hear it. I don't want to tell it. Coming in? You are crazy. Woo. I didn't want you to have life in the cheap seats, Cecil. the cheap seats. Spending every waking moment with my dad watching baseball. We're the best seats in the house. You're still single, aren't you? Maybe you are emotionally unavailable. Who are you, Dr. Phil? Hey, that is quality television. Yeah. This is Neil Young. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is a race car guy. He's a car collector, a hot air balloon pilot, and a member of the Board of Trustees for the College of Creative Studies in Detroit, Michigan. I'm delighted to welcome to the show my friend, Frank Campanelli. Frank, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Rob. How are you, buddy? Pretty good, pretty good. So uh, we, we had this discussion about baseball and uh, Clint Eastwood, so I just had to wind that one up for you. <laughs> Yeah, I loved it. That was a great movie. It was, ex- was just a fantastic guy. Yeah, that was just a, a touching movie. I mean, I'm not. I'm like you. I'm not a baseball fan necessarily, but that movie, I really got into it. I think Clint Eastwood just—he's just an amazing actor. He's an amazing actor. He's a great American patriot. More importantly, he's a car guy. Yeah, that's right. Now, go ahead. Share a little story with you. You told me earlier that you happened to be at the Mission Inn in uh, Carmel, and uh, you were listening to some music, and uh, and Clint Eastwood uh, sat at your table. Yeah, it was it was interesting. He um, <clears throat> first of all, I didn't even I didn't even realize he owned the place when I was there. But I I heard about the fact that um, that Monday night was like open mic night there, and they have a great piano bar, great piano player. And uh, you know, he said, okay, people, the mic's open, available for people to come up and sing. And this old lady on a walker came tottering up there with this walker, and she she had osteoporosis, her back was all bent. And she finally works her way up to the microphone. She grabs the microphone, tells the piano player what to say, which was the song from the Broadway play Cabaret, and starts singing and just blew the windows out of the place. I mean, this big, strong, powerful voice. 
came out of her mouth, and I was just sitting there with my mouth open. And Eastwood walks by, and he looks at me, and he says, you need me to kick you in the chest, get your heart started again, you okay? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, man, I just can't believe that voice is coming out of that little old lady. And he started laughing, and he sat down at the table and talked to me for quite a while, and he said, what are you doing here? I'm here for Pebble Beach. And and, um, and pretty soon we started talking about cars. He started telling me about his old Jaguar XK120, and he owned Ferraris, and he had Mustangs. Uh, Shelby Mustangs, a number of different cars that he talked about, and I never asked him anything about Hollywood, which I think he probably liked, and and probably used the table I was sitting at as a retreat to not have to talk about it. Interesting. So, um, yeah, great guy. I met him a couple of times, actually. I met him at a, uh, a celebrity tennis tournament one time as well. But very, very kind and down-to-earth guy. Super, super. Well, one of these days, with a little luck, I might get him on the show. That's one of my goals, to have uh, Clint Eastwood on here, because I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan. Frank, tell well, us I'll a little bit. I'll make a deal with you. If I pump, bump into him at Pebble Beach next year again, he's there every year. Really? I'll bump into him. We'll see if we can make that happen, right? That, I, I would jump for joy. I really would. I owe you big time. So, Frank, tell us a little bit about uh, your background, because you have an interesting connection with some, uh, some of the uh, amazing designs that came out of uh, Detroit. Well, you know, my uh, my uncle was an Italian immigrant and uh, came to America. Actually, my grandfather hand-built the uh, first Oldsmobile engine for the 1901 curved dash holes for our EOLs. He, uh, he cast the block and forged crankshaft and machined the pistons and actually assembled this engine. And uh, so I had cars in my blood. You know, where most people have a heart, I got a fuel pump. <laughs> and uh, so... My uncle, obviously, his son, uh, was very much into machinery, cars, and so forth. And and um, they went back to Italy for a long time, started all the first bus lines in southern Italy, uh, built them out of old World War I um, military vehicles, which back then were built by Bianchi. And he converted them into buses, and, and they were quite successful. And then when Mussolini came into power, uh, my uncle, and my, excuse me, my grandfather hated them and came back to America and wanted his sons to grow up in America. And and uh, when he came back, uh, my uncle at that time uh, decided that he was going to start a imported car business, repairing imported cars. And uh, in after the war, during World War II, he went into the uh, Air Force, and he was a, uh, a B-17, a B-29 test pilot. And then uh, after the war, he came back and opened up his business again and was one of the founding guys uh, for the SCCA. He was very close with Virgil Exner, who became the uh, chief of design for Chrysler Corporation, Katie Keller, who was the CEO of Chrysler Corporation, and was racing cars in SCCA, was good friends with Jim Kimberly, Miles Collier Sr., Briggs Cunningham, and all of that crew, um, you know, back then during the days when Watkins Glen and McDill Air Force Base down in Florida and in the first endurance races at Sebring, which originally were a six-hour endurance race, eventually evolved into a 12-hour endurance race. So he was part of all that. And he was not only my uncle, but my best friend. And as a kid, actually, uh, one of the very first cars he built was called the uh, Fiat Fargo Special. It was a little car that he hand-built in his garage in Detroit in a shop actually designed it on the floor with shock and then started beating the metal over uh, over wood stumps, basically, like he learned in Italy, and over a wet burlap sack. 
He uh, hand-formed the body, built this great little car called the Fiat Fargo Special, drove it to Watkins Glen in 1948 and raced the car and won the Queen Catherine Cup and also won uh, design award for best design car. They're against the likes of Jaguar and Maserati and, and even Ferrari. And the Ferraris back in 1948, those were the first cars that were pretty ugly anyway. So, <laughs> um, so uh, he, you know, he did okay. And then he got a lot of attention. He kind of hit all the newspapers in Detroit, which was the motor capital of the world at that time. And everybody started hanging out at his place every Saturday to the point where he had to close it for business and just have it open for uh, kind of our version of cars and coffee today. Um, after the notoriety of that car, uh, Chrysler Corporation started using them more and more. He went back to Italy. He had raced, you know, some races in Italy, Targa Florio and stuff like that. And uh, <clears throat> Exner decided that he wanted to change. Actually, Exner was hired at Chrysler to really change their whole design strategy. And anybody that knows who Virgil Exner is knows that his nickname was Excess. He's the guy that really sort of developed fins and all the excess uh, chrome and, and doodads that he used to call them that he put on the cars. But he and my uncle became best of friends. And my uncle convinced him that if he was building these prototypes, he could build them a lot cheaper in Italy than they could build them in the United States. So Exner agreed to that, talked to K.T. Keller, and they started building the uh, what are today known as the Chrysler Ghia concept cars in Italy with Ghia. And X would design these cars, do all the renderings. Michael would go to Italy and do the engineering, kind of do some redesigning on the cars in order to actually make them work as cars. And lo and behold, you know, cars like the uh, like the Dodge Adventurer, the Gilda, um, and eventually even the dual Ghias, which came from the Firebomb and the Fire Arrow, they were derivative of that car, uh, came into being. And uh, 19, in 1955, uh, my uncle was approached by a guy named Gene Casserole, who owned a company called Auto Shippers. He's the guy that actually invented the, the big double-story car hauling trailers that you see on the roads today. But he was the only company that was doing that back then. And he was a real car guy, sponsored a lot of Indy cars, and was very interested. He wanted to reproduce that little Fiat Fargo special sports car that my uncle had built in 1948 and, and go into production with it. And my uncle convinced him that he might be better off uh, taking advantage of buying all the components from Chrysler and taking one of the Exner-designed uh, prototypes and taking that into production. And so they did a little redesign on that. That became the Dual Geo, which in 1957, when it was introduced, the first guy to buy the car was, was Frank Sinatra. And from then that point forward, it was Sinatra. Uh, Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford, Hoagie Carmichael, Lucille Ball. I mean, you know, basically it was the car of the stars. In uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Um, the Road and Track magazine in 1957 said that if you couldn't get a dual gear, you might settle for a Rolls Royce. <laughs> nice line. Nice. That's like the one yeah. that people say, hey, if you want to be somebody, you buy a Ferrari. Of course, now Luigi's going to squeal when he hears this one. But if you are somebody, yeah. you own a Lamborghini. So, you know, I thought that was cute, too. That's a very good line, actually. <laughs> and of course, of course, you know the you know the uh, pissing contest that uh, Lamborghini had with Ferrari, and how the Lamborghini came to be. So, oh yeah, especially a good line. Yeah, absolutely, excellent. Well, now that's amazing. Now, how many dual gears did they actually build? They built 117 of the convertible, right? 
Um, and that included two prototypes, included the uh, the uh, coupe prototype and then also one of the convertible prototypes, which interestingly started out without fins. Um, you know, it was based on the uh, fire arrow and the firebomb concept, as I said. And then uh, Casserole, Gene Casserole, who was the money guy behind the dual gear, he insisted on putting fins on it, which, in my opinion, as well as my uncle's, obviously thought made it not as attractive that it looked a lot better without the fins. So the first ones were actually made without fins, and uh, on the first few of those cars, the fins were welded on. So I've got both of the prototypes. I've got the prototype of the uh, the dual gear convertible, which was there. Somebody out there thinks they've got it in, in uh, serial number 101, but there was actually a serial number zero, which uh, remained in Italy until a few years ago when I acquired it. It's under restoration. And then I have the prototype of the... In 1961, uh, my uncle uh, built 25, very limited production. This was because of Sinatra and Dean Martin hassling them, of something called the Gia L6.4. The only one that was badged as a dual Gia was the prototype. And then after that, Casserole was out of the picture. It was just a partnership between uh, Paul Fargo, who was my uncle, and uh, Luigi Segre, who owned Gia. And they built exactly 25 of those cars, stopped production in order to begin production of 50 of the Chrysler turbine cars, which were also built at Ghia in Italy. Interesting. Where did the name Dual Ghia originate? Why do they well, call it Dual Ghia? Yeah, Dual was from Castrol's company. One of his companies was called Dual Motors. Oh. And that, that, that came from during World War II, he was making these vehicles that they used on the ramps of the Air Force, the military Air Force, and they had two engines in them. They had one in the front and one in the back. So in, they, that, that company within his umbrella corporation was called Dual Motors. So when my uncle suggested that they build the cars at Ghia in Italy and they were looking for a name, they just decided on the dual gear, and the emblem was a cross of a, an Italian flag and a U.S. flag. Interesting. The turbine cars. Go on and talk a little bit about that now. So that they were both they were all designed to gear as well. Yeah, well, they were. They actually weren't designed to gear. They were designed. Uh, Exner uh, had a massive coronary, and uh, had a hard time coming back from that massive coronary. After he came back, though, I guess he wasn't quite the same. And uh, he was sort of demoted and removed from the job. And they hired uh, Maynard Engel from Ford Motor Company. And uh, Engel, Engel was known for the uh, the second generation of the Thunderbirds, which they used to call the Squarebird. Yep. And uh, so anyway, he got lured over to Chrysler. And uh, when he got lured over to Chrysler, Chrysler was already working on uh, turbine engine-powered cars. And they had put some turbine engines and some other cars other than the turbine car that everybody knows today. There were some kind of ugly models of it. And um, so Engel and his staff designed a new car, which, if you really look at it closely, it kind of looks like it's got some T-Bird cues in it. It kind of mm-hmm. looks like the third generation of T-Birds, you know, that they started building in 61, 62, 63. Yeah, the bullet bird. It, 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 yeah, it has some of that look to it. And um, so Engel designed this car. There were a couple of different versions of the prototype. One was a two-seat with a, a, a shorter roof line on it, and then it evolved into the four-seat car, uh, which uh, then Paul Fargo took to uh, Italy 
and they did a little bit, you know, of course, you know, when it goes from the artistic design into having to engineer that design into a, a workable automobile, that took place at Gia. So they built 50 of the cars at Gia. The bodies in the cars were shipped back. The rollers were shipped back to the United States where the uh, engines were installed in Highland Park at Chrysler. So they, they made 50 of those, and they were on the road for three years. Um, they actually gave them out to people kind of sort of randomly. Um, you know, there was a process by which they selected people, you know, uh, businessmen, you know, people that uh, had to drive a lot of miles for a living for whatever reason. They picked different uh, occupations, and these people had the cars for a set period of time, and then they would report back as to the usability of the car and so forth. After uh, after that three-year period was up, and three years was the, the number, because when the cars were built in Italy, the companies that brought the cars overseas had to pay duty on those cars before the end of the third year, or the cars had to be crushed, one or the other. Ooh. So uh, so my uh, uncle, uh, Paul Fargo, offered to buy all 50 of them. Actually, he was going to pull the turbines out of them because the, the turbines didn't work out very well. They were way too thirsty and way too polluting and also didn't have any low and torque. I mean, I remember... Uh, Fargo coming over to my house when I was a, a kid <laughs> and pulling up in the driveway with this thing that sounded like a Hoover vacuum cleaner, and the entire neighborhood would gather around, and he would uh, he would uh, tell everybody to go home and bring back anything that was flammable. So people would come back with kerosene and lighter fluid and tequila and vodka and you name it, anything that burned, and he would just pour it in the gas tank just to show that this turbine engine would burn virtually anything. And he would take people for rides. But I remember that in order to get that thing going, he, was, he had a stop sign. He would have to brake torque it. You know, you push your foot on the brake and then rev up the engine. Mm-hmm. All of us did that in high school. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, well, you'd have to wind this thing up to like 20,000 RPM oh. <laughs> and, and then let it go, you know, and then the car would take off. But, it, it, you know, it had really bad law and torque. So, anyway, they decided not to build the car. And uh, basically, uh, you know, they were ordered to crush the cars. Well, all of them were supposed to have been crushed except for three. But as best I can tell, there's still about five of them around. Um, There may be a couple of them that actually ended up in South America mysteriously. Uh, much like a lot of the, the uh, Gia concept cars also ended up in South America. That was also supposed to be crushed. So... Anyway, that was the story on the turbine car. But I went to I went to Italy as a kid. I was a, you know, anywhere from seven to eleven years old. And I went there with Fargo and uh, watching these people, the craftsmen that were building these cars were doing essentially like I said, Fargo had built his first little car. Gia was uh, had been virtually destroyed during World War II, and it took them you know decades to really rebuild the factory. So they were working lit- literally under lean tos. And they'd start forming, you know, the, the metal to build these, to handcraft these cars, literally over burlap sacks filled with sand that they would hose down and get them wet so they could form the sand and harden it and then start bending the, wet, the, the metal, the sheet metal around it. And these craftsmen would literally weld the sheet metal together without welding rod. And they knew exactly as they were welding the two pieces of sheet metal, if you can imagine two square pieces of sheet metal butted up end to end 
and this guy is welding it, and he knew exactly how that metal would bend as it heated and exactly what would happen when it cooled. And he would actually build pieces with compound curves in it with absolutely perfect welds in the sheet metal with no rod. It was absolutely incredible. I, I know I'm 68 years old now, and I remember it clear as day. That's just an unbelievable opportunity. I mean, at the time, did you realize how lucky you were to be exposed to that, to see all that? Of course. Rob, of course not. You know, <laughs> I mean, how, how many of us actually, you know, knew how fortunate we were as kids, especially in America in the 50s? You know, when America in a lot of ways was at its peak. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were, we were very, very fortunate. But that was, that was really fortunate for me looking back on it, but I didn't realize it at the time. Now, where Gia was located in Italy, is that where Turin was and Bertone? And were they all in the same general area there, Milan and down around Bologna and stuff like that? Or where exactly? Well, they're, they're, no, Gia, Gia was in Torino, which Turin. is Turin. In the, okay, Turin. You know? So they're, they're in Torino. And there, there are an awful lot of the companies there, you know, with, you know, Pini and Farina, you know, touring, I think, is closer to Milano. It's about an, outside, okay. about an hour outside of Milano, outside of Malpensa there. But. You know, you had this entire cottage industry, which was really interesting also. When, um, you know, as an example, that turbine car had a cast aluminum uh, transmission tunnel that was designed to sort of look like a turbine, right? Uh-huh. Like a jet turbine. And, you know, the cottage industry was, you know, they, they'd have this guy, you know, like two blocks away cast this. And this might have been Mario, cast this piece, right? And he would send it a couple of doors down to Sergio and Sergio would file all the castings, and then he'd give it over to Francesco, and maybe a couple blocks down of Francesco would polish all the castings, and then he'd send it down to the next guy, and Mario would drill the holes and tap the holes, and finally work his way all the way around back to Gia again, and they'd install the pieces. So they, they had this almost like subcontractor business with all these people that would make the various pieces. That is fascinating. That is really cool. That. So that, that's what cracks me up when I'm judging at many of these car shows and and uh, I listen to, you know, some of the quote-unquote experts, and I judge at a lot of shows, right? Uh-huh. And I'm not saying anything demeaning about them, but, you know, most of the experts base their opinion about what's proper and correct on some of these cars based on a car. And, you know, they didn't know what parts, what screws they were going to use from one day to another. They just used whatever they could get their hands on. I won't mention a name, but I was judging Ferraris at a very significant uh, Ferrari show. And uh, one of the gentlemen that was judging with me was picking on a guy about his taillight screws, that they were the wrong screws. And I finally lost it, and I said, listen, how, you know, wh- how do you know that? And he gives me this whole dog and pony show about, well, they, you know, I know it because, you know, the first three cars were built this way, they had the same screws. But let me tell you something. After World War II, they didn't have a clue what screws they're going to use. They just, whatever they could get their hands on. Sometimes they didn't have the same screws from the left tail light to the right tail light. And uh, <clears throat> I was uh, with Carol and uh, Carol Shelby and Cleo, his wife Cleo and Sterling and, and, uh, and uh, Susie Moss, and we were having, I was, we were together, he's a grand marshal at a show, and I was telling him that story. He goes, that was aw shit, Frank. He goes, <laughs> when we were building the Cobras, uh, we never knew. I'd send the guys down to the East Hardware store, and they'd come back with just, they'd bring handfuls of screws and bolts and stuff, and we'd use whatever we got from the Ace Hardware store. They were never the same from car to car. <laughs> so, 
you know, I find it kind of amusing and sad in a way that people, you know, their cars get judged and they're told that the car is incorrect when absolutely wasn't the case at all. In many cases, those people just replaced exactly what was on the car when they started the restoration. Wow. Frank, we are just about up against the clock, but I'll tell you what, you have got a wealth of knowledge and uh, just a, a backlog of really, really cool stories, and your connections are just uh, amazing. I would definitely love to have you back on the show again. In fact, we'll even do one, we'll do a special with your good friend Luigi Canetti. And, uh, yeah, L- Luigi Luigi told me, he texted me back, he said he'd love to do it, Rob. Excellent, excellent. So we're going to have the Luigi Canetti Jr. on the show, and he can tell us all kinds of stories about his dad. And of course, we're, we're going to need you to sit there and get that information out of him, because, you know, he's he kind of like, eh, you know, you know. He, but you can you can get it out of him. You can make him talk. But still, I would love to have you on again, before because I would love to talk about some of the design stuff, because you've got a very good rapport and connection with many of the high-end concourse around here, Amelia Island, Pebble Beach, St. John's. And uh, and and as well as a lot of connections with the big three and these stories about you know these 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 small manufacturers and these car companies out of Italy and the companies and what was going on in the fifties and sixties in the United States those are absolutely absolutely incredible stories. Frank, I want to thank you very much for taking some time and hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and uh, look forward to having you on the show again. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be be here with you and talking with you and i always enjoy seeing you at the various concours excellent well i guess the next time we'll see you might be could be hershey could be st john's or for sure out in monterey right definitely i'll see all three of them hopefully (laughs) all right i want to thank (laughs) i want to thank my very special guest a good friend of mine frank campanelli Supercar guy, and you know what? We, we'll have to talk a little bit about the uh, the college of uh, of uh, st- uh, what's it called? Studies? Yeah, College of Creative Studies. Creative Studies in Detroit. Actually, actually, that's where Ralph Veal, head of global design for uh, Fiat Chrysler, graduated from. And and by the way, you know, uh, the head of global design for Ford, GM, and Fiat Chrysler are all on the board of. All right, Frank, they're with me at CCS. All right, we're out. Anyway, hey, Frank, thank you very much. Hey, in the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, love your family. WTAN, Clearwater. FM 106.1. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.